All right, so John, you've had quite the illustrious career and quite the academic career, it seems like. You're, uh, I would probably put you at least, at least 10 units of smartness above me. And so <laughs> you want to give us a little bit of a background on, I, I, I like this idea of what you did in college, especially as you exceeded or excelled past the bachelor realm. What was it? What'd you do? Tell us a little bit about that. All right. So my, my story is a little, little weird. So I, I started out in Norway. That's where I'm originally from. And mm. I, uh, Much I just sort of, sorry, Ludafisk. Yeah, Ludafisk. Uh, we all collectively hate it, but pretend to foreigners that we like it. I used to eat it every Christmas. Yep. It was a requirement in my family. We're very That's Norwegian fantastic. around here. Yeah, I had to eat a yeah, lot Yeah, I mean, of it. usually you eat it for the condiments. Like, the fish is there so that you can scrape it to the side of the plate, and then you eat, like, the honey and brown cheese and stuff instead. Okay, I thought it was just a way to get more butter into my system. I mean, that too. Just okay. anything but the fish. Anything That's the but important the fish? Part. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm from Norway originally. And, you know, wh while I was there, computer science wasn't really a thing that like, there were no classes in computer science. So I just sort of did it on the side. Um, and then when I finished high school and was like looking for bachelors, I was like, uh, I guess I'll start like an intro to CS course yeah. and started taking it and was bored out of my mind. Um, Naturally. and then a friend of mine was like, you know, I'm going to Australia for film school. Why don't you just come with, I think as a joke. Um, but I was like, fuck it. Why not? And so like a few months later, I moved to Australia to do a bachelor's there. Classic um, computer scientist, though, not catching on to social cues. Hey, just oh, yeah, exactly. Okay. Yep, yep, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that's pretty much what happened. Uh, I think they all hate me now. It's fine. Oh, yeah, that's uh, fine. Yeah. It was fun, though, because I ended up being used in as basically a prop and stand in for all of their various like film and TV shoots, which was a lot of fun. Nice. Um, Are you a part of the Actors Guild? Did you have to no, apply to anything? No, or this I'm not was prestigious just amateur. Enough. Okay, this is just amateur yeah. hour stuff. It wasn't. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm uh, entirely an amateur. But I got to like hold mics every now and again and stuff. So that was okay. fun. Um, and then uh, you know, fast forward a little bit. I basically chose lots of random subjects over the course of that bachelor. So you're supposed to like follow a major and stuff. Yeah. I didn't do that. So I have two majors in general computer science. So you're supposed to pick two majors There's as part of that bachelor. And there's supposed to be like information security and algorithms or something. Okay, Mine are so just major, too majors, general. Does majors like refer to it in this case, because this is not the term we would use, uh, is a major effectively like a class that you take like three class or like a, a niche that you yeah. take three classes in. So yeah, it's like a specialization of the bachelor. Okay. So you take, okay. Okay. So a major uh, is a specialization. And, okay. Yeah. And I basically didn't specialize. So I took subjects that were everything from like, Unix sysadmin tools to Dude, data so structure awesome. to like computer science entrepreneurship. So my subjects were just all over the place. So they didn't know what to call it. So they just gave me a double general in computer science. I think that's the way to go, though. I mean, honestly, the, the Tour de France approach gives you like the full kind of idea of what is available. I, I wish I, I would mean, have that taken was my more thinking too. things, right, myself. Yeah, and I think also at the time I was like, I don't know what I want to do. Yeah. I don't know what is the coolest thing. I want to sample, right? Yeah. I do. I still um, don't even really know what I want to do, and I'm I'm over a decade past college. Barely yeah. though, it took me eight years to get through college, and I'm not a doctor, but it's <laughs> a regular guy. I mean, I don't think I know either. Like, I still feel like I'm I'm fiddling with a bunch of different areas where I'm like, mm -hmm. this is really cool, but I can't choose one. That's ridiculous. Yeah. I agree. Changes um, changes the spice of life, right? Yep. Yep. Ah, all right. Um, so you kept I, on going, so that, right? Yeah. So so then I moved on to I moved on to the UK. Um, I lived in London for a few years and did my master's there. Um, and my master's was in like networking. It had nothing to do with my mm -hmm. bachelor and nothing to do with what I do now. It was all like wireless networking and like low level networking parts of the stack. Um, and then I did. Yeah. Sorry. Good. I said, that's fun. You do a little Shannon's theorem. Was that your, that was your master's was seeing how much of a pipe could get filled? It was, it was a little bit of that. And then a little bit of, um, the thing I was looking at in particular was like Wi-Fi interference. Like what happens if you mm -hmm. run lots of Wi-Fi networks and just like send shit tons of traffic through each one, how much worse do they get? Um, well, compared to one bad, another? Right? That was interesting. Answer is it's bad. pretty bad. Yeah, it's yeah. it's really bad. Is it is it an exponential curve to 100 or like an inverse tangent curve or is it a logarithmic curve? Um, so it's, 
it ends up being logarithmic because they end up sort of sharing towards the end. Uh, okay. But it also depends on how close they are in channels in the Wi-Fi spectrum. But this was also like back before like Wi-Fi N and MIMO and stuff. So everything is probably better now, but also the future is shit. So it's probably broken. Nice. Sorry about that. All right. Anyways, anyways. Back, no, back no, you're networking. fine. Don't worry about it. I just used some uh, wireless networking right there. Both and it somehow worked. I know it somehow worked. There's not a lot of interference here. I live in South Dakota. You know, uh, just like the just just the radiation from birds mostly is the only kind of radiation that we get around here. And I've intentionally isn't, removed. Isn't the, the current consensus the birds aren't real though? Yeah, they're robots, government spy drones. So that's the radiation, right? right? They're admitting yeah, so, some so sort of. Yeah, so they race. presumably interfere a lot with uh, your your Wi-Fi and and wireless connectivity. That's why Wi-Fi always sucks when you see a swarm of birds. It's a fact. That's well-known right. fact. As we all know. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've known that for years, even before I realized yeah. that they're spy drones. <laughs> um, but it was a logarithmic after, suckness. <laughs> <laughs> so after my master's, I actually did, um, I did a research project also in, in London on indoor localization, which was actually a little creepy. Uh, or Creepy is the wrong word. But so the research project was, can we use, like, if you have multiple Wi-Fi routers, like think, you know, basically yeah. any public space, um, can we use it to triangulate where the sender of the Wi-Fi signal is? And we were able to build a thing that like tracked you indoor in real time without you noticing down to about 23 centimeters. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it, it, I can imagine that would definitely happen and it probably is already happening constantly all the time. Yep. And yeah. there was a point so during that research, like we we published a paper on stuff and there was a point I remember where there were like people from the British government who came in to like check on our research. <laughs> I was like, this is weird. <laughs> Anyone from the US government as well? Yeah, um, we're just no, here, but then again, know, would I know if there were? Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, that's super <laughs> sus. Oh my goodness. You know, I mean, the reality is, is none of that should be super shocking in the sense no. that... You know, the constant extraction of information that you give off freely that you don't realize is just going to always be done. And who knows how much stuff actually goes into these hardware. I mean, I've heard many stories where people can't identify stuff in hardware you buy. We're not allowed to plug in devices just freely onto the network at Netflix because, you know, like stuff just starts happening. You know, we have some yep. trusted list of devices like it's a weird world out there. A lot of communication. I mean, I'm on. I'm sufficiently paranoid about this stuff that I have like a little. I think it's called like a USB condom. So it's this like little mm. red device that you plug into USB ports and like airplanes and stuff, and then you plug your cable into that, and it only allows power through and no data. Oh, because I don't I don't trust devices. Oh, I never even thought about that. But yeah, why not? Right? Why Why couldn't it do stuff? <laughs> oh yeah, no, it's oh, it's terrifying. Like there are some really interesting security hacks that are basically like. You plug in a device over USB and the oh, host no. device exploits your device and then leaves like a little rootkit there. So the next time you plug it into your computer, your computer's fucked. Uh, yep. You just, you just, that, you that was my first My anxiety too. levels just went up 5% right there. I can yep. feel it at this very moment. Now I'm going to go buy a bunch of condoms, USB, USB condoms. condoms. Yeah, exactly. Do they come in USB? Just don't get real ones. That's not going to help you. Yeah, yeah. But so, so because I use, I don't use Magnums anymore with USBs. I'm all about that USB-C. So do they have like mini condom finger cots for them? You know, that's a good question. I only have them for USB-A. But okay. I should get one for USB-C. But yeah. you know, when are airlines going to give you USB-C? That's not going to be for like 20 years. That's true. They don't upgrade their stuff. We'll already be on USB-D. Have you heard of the USB-C? USB D? Yeah, USB D. Or do you mean not... USB PD? Because that's also a thing. Yeah, I just snuck that in. Okay, anyways, it was missed, <laughs> but it's okay. Don't don't worry about it. it. It doesn't really matter. Okay. I just wanted I needed to get into D's nuts joke at least once in this. All right, got it. No, him. that's good. That's yeah. good. I like it. All right. Anyway, so you did research, you were able to triangulate people, and then you stopped there. Was that the end of your Collegiate yeah, because career. I was in, then I was interested in other stuff. Like as part of that work, I did like GPU acceleration and like multi-threaded stuff to be able to compute this stuff real time. And I was like, that stuff is cool, like concurrency and data structures and algorithms. So yeah. I should do distributed systems, which is like my next conclusion. I don't know why. That uh, kind of makes then, sense. It's a natural job. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I um, ended up at MIT at the Parallel and Distributed Operating Systems Group where I got to do research on that kind of stuff. Um, and that was really fun, but also like, you know, a very long six years uh, of, of constant studies. Um, but that, yeah. that was really fun. Um, I built this um, basically a database in Rust that is 
the, the basic take of it is it um, knows your queries. So you tell it about your queries ahead of time and it like creates this big program that's running continuously and computes the results of your queries uh, sort of proactively. So that okay. when you do queries, they do go super fast rather than having to compute on every read. Is this just so a sort bunch of, of macro the magic? query load from write to read. You have to like compile it ahead of time. You give it your query. You give it your effectively your SQL. I call it squeal. You give it your squeal and then then you compile your program and then you launch that program. Is that what happens or is it more um, runtime? You don't have to fully like pre-compile. You basically run it as like a little program, almost like a cache between you and the database. Okay. So it can be mostly transparent to your application, but you give it your squeal and it internally constructs the appropriate data flow to compute the results as the data changes. Okay. Okay. Awesome. I like that. That's, that's actually pretty clever. Did it, did it pick up any steam? Did it, did you, did it go anywhere? Do I know the name of it? Are you about um, to just so drop? the research project is called Noria and it got a decent amount of attention from like the Rust community and the database community. Um, I didn't take it anywhere further, although I helped um, co-found a company called ReadySet that are now like making it a real product that you can okay. like run in production. The thing I built was more of like a research prototype to like demonstrate that this is possible. But it turns out, you know, the delta between I can run it on my systems for a research paper and I yeah. want to run it in production and have real users use it. There's like a pretty big gap. Yeah, it's like the last 20%, right? That's all it is. Yep. Yep. Just, just a little bit. The last 20% that takes 80% of yeah. the time. Yeah, it's just, just yep. that last little bit. Uh, th that's actually pretty awesome. And so you were able to kind of get this going, some other companies running with it. Were you actually able to see real gains? Did you do real research or did you kind of, it was a little bit canned research in the sense that you're like, look at how great this data looks. Right. <laughs> no, also I, I tried really hard to, to make it be a real thing. Like okay. one thing that bothers me a lot about academia is it's especially computer science is that it's so easy to build a thing where like, Theoretically, I can show that this is a hundred times faster on yeah. appropriate workloads. Yeah. And, and I wanted this to be like, A, it should be a thing that other people can run and B, it should actually matter for real applications. Yeah. So what I did was I, um, I reached out to the people who run Lobsters, which is like a it's sort of like Hacker News, uh, okay. but it's open source. Um, and I got in touch with the admins there and got access to like statistics over all of their like access loads and data distributions and stuff. And then I built a workload generator that like generates page loads and SQL queries appropriate to what the real site does. And then I ran that against, you know, just regular MySQL and uh, MySQL with Memcached and with my thing. Um, and it's like 10x faster. Nice. Okay. That's really Which cool. Which is, you know, it's pretty substantial. No, that's very, very substantial because a database becomes very quickly a bottleneck. Because it just, it, those joins get very confusing very, very quickly. Yep. And it just blows everything up. Also, it was like a combination, right? So I wanted to be, be faster, but I also wanted, you know, th there are all these applications out there where people have like hand rolled their own caching logic. And yeah. it's a <laughs> massive pain to maintain, right? There's just like thousands of lines of like complex I wrote Falcor, stuff. so I know all about this. That was a JavaScript side caching library that you'd make these HTTP requests. You know, if you've seen the meme where the person gets a 200 back and then they open it up yep. and it says error inside of there. That, I mean, yep. I, I, I literally was one of the originators of the said meme. It is very, yep. very, very painful. Uh, caching is it extremely sucks. hard. And yep. you know, someone always inevitably, when it comes to caching, asks for this one thing, which is the worst thing. I want to set something into the cache that when you set it in, it is immediately invalidated except for this request. Right? Like some sort of zero time life caching thing. And you're just like, dude, that, why would you? Why are you asking for this? It yeah, why are you happens. using this this way? <laughs> I know every time it's just gonna it's yep. gonna ruin my life. You're you're literally yep. ruining my life with that question. And so yeah, that was yeah. My my other favorite is people who want to cache things that will never remain valid, like stuff where you you like cache a query where you're then immediately gonna do a write that invalidates the cache. Yeah, like it's just there was no reason to cache it in the first place. You it makes see no it all sense. the time. I, can I tell you one fun story about Netflix and yeah, uh, go the Falcorp? So. If you get anything about Falcor, effectively what it was, is you can imagine an array of uh, like strings, and each one of those would be an index into the object. It could be a symlink, so that way you can, uh, you know, you can have the live free die hard referenced a bunch of times. So just imagine a file system symlinking and all that. Uh, <clears throat> and so you can make these requests to servers. Say you give it a long path, and the path doesn't exist, but you don't know where in the path it doesn't exist, and you don't want to overwrite or destroy symlinks. So what we do is we'd add an extra little option called materialize at the end of it. 
which would go, the server would go, okay, this path doesn't exist here. I'm going to send you back the cache fragment that you need to insert into your path. That will be stored, and so you will know that you haven't broken it. And so I was like, okay, you know, I'm going to think about this. I'm going to play with it. And everyone, you know, they made it. It was fantastic, all that. And then I started thinking about, like, what does that actually do? And so I wrote a query that effectively looked like foo, 0 through 100, 0 through 100, 0 through 100, 0 through 100 bar materialize. And I took down all of staging, all of test, all of uh, uh, integration with a single small script. And I was just like, hey, you know, I could take down entirely Netflix and there is no path forward. You cannot revert this change because it has been in for years. And it was like Netflix had a, they called it a repulsive grizzly attack. I could just <laughs> permanently shut down Netflix. And that's all I'd have to do. And so it took us two years to fix this bug. It was like the most egregious bug ever. And it was introduced by me also. Yep. I, I mean, both identified it and introduced it. But, you know, it feels really good to know that I could have destroyed Netflix permanently. Yep. <laughs> it's awful when you find those bugs where you're you're just like poking around and you're like, I took down production. I know, you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> shit. And it's all with caching? Dang it. <laughs> how, did, yep. how did I ruin it with caching? This is the worst. This is supposed to be the best thing. <laughs> yep. No, the problem is anytime the server does something on behalf of a user, it's bad. Yeah. Which is what servers do all the time, which means the servers are bad. Servers of course, are we have nothing better. problematic, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So you, uh, you've done all that, and then now you've, you've sold off your little piece of software or gave it away or whatever you did. And then now you're going into the real world, I assume, at this point, quote unquote, real yeah, world. Yeah. So that, that was the plan. So my, my girlfriend got me this mug, which I'm very happy about, that just says fucking done. I don't know if you can see <laughs> yeah, this with yeah, the reflection. It's, it's, it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I got that, and I was like, okay, time to return to the real world now. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I joined AWS back in like November 2020. Like okay. basically, I had one day off, and then I started working. Man, you, <laughs> because, didn't, you, you know, didn't put any COVID pandemic, yeah. Yeah, yeah, whatnot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You were already um, at home all the time, so you're like, well, might as well yeah, be on a keyboard exactly. at this point. Yep. Uh, and like, it's not like I can take a vacation. Like, <laughs> what am I supposed to do? Nothing. Um yeah, exactly. And then um, you could have come to South you know, Dakota. Well, you know, we could have rode bikes. Would that have been a nice vacation? Is South Dakota bears? nice. It's beautiful. First off, I live there, so it's fantastic. Uh, Th second, those are not the same. Second you, off, you living there does not mean it's nice. Though. It is very, very nice. Okay, the the it, it rains regularly. We get water. There's hills. Oh, I love rain. Yeah, it does not rain here. This is a desert. Are you? You're in the Bay. I'm in L.A. Oh, you're it's in L.A. Worse. The even worse version of the Bay. You get yep. no rain, plus you get clouds that don't actually contain rain, just too much people. That's what it contains. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah, you, it's, a little, it's, a, it's a breath of fresh air, you might, you might say. Uh, anyways, yeah. I feel so like got, South Dakota would remind me more of home. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. It was, yeah it's hilly with some rocks. Not, it's not super mountainous, but yeah. Okay. So anyways, you, you, you joined AWS. You've been doing distributed systems now for quite some time, so you're probably feeling pretty fresh, but now you're entering into the real world. Was there like some oddities like what did you find to be the most kind of like shocking or culture shocking for you because now you're in a real work environment if you will um real you work, know it's, yeah. it's yeah real is anything ever real yeah. um you know it was interesting because i when i joined aws initially i was like i'm gonna do distributed systems there surely um but that's not actually what i ended up joining to do instead what i joined to do is work on the like build tooling and build infrastructure for Rust at AWS. So okay. I'm not even doing distributed systems, even though that that's AWS's big thing and that's my background. <laughs> but just... just no, no. Okay, that's pretty good though. So how how has that uh, been? Because obviously, getting uh, I assume getting Rust, getting a build system, especially like I mean, I work at a big company. Changing how something is done is exceptionally painful. Uh, it's not only is it half the time political. It's also just you know, there's just also uh, it's not inept isn't the right word, but maybe uh, apathy towards change as well. And so how's that? How How is that? You know, it's weird because uh, on the one hand, it can be very, uh, it can be a bit of a slog to get anything changed because, mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're sort of this, you're at the bottom of the, of the build graph, right? So yeah. any change you make has this like outsized impact. Um, so it can be frustrating because you need to really make sure that the changes you make aren't going to break something out there. Um, but on the other hand, it means that you have this like force multiplier effect, right? Where if I make an improvement, I can make the lives of 
everyone mm -hmm. using Rust at AWS better. And and then they will make everything else better in return, right? So yep. there was a change like early on um, that I made that reduced like um, clean build times by 30 seconds or something. Which a lot like of these build does, times. doesn't matter if something takes an hour to build, but if yeah. it takes a minute to build, 30 seconds yeah. is a lot. So how long did um, it take to build? Well, so, so it depends, right? It depends on whatever, like because I went then the build tool, the, the challenge is how fast does the thing I build, build their stuff. And that depends on the size yeah. of their stuff. But for a lot of it is like, you know, people picking up Rust or experimenting with Rust on their team. And they're like, why does this thing take 40 seconds to build? And the answer was 30 of the seconds was spent on stupid shit that the build tool shouldn't be doing. Nice. Right? Okay. And, nice. and so cutting that time made a huge impact to the yeah. productivity of everyone using Rust, which is a very cool thing to be able to do, right? Yeah, you're, you're so probably that's even like compiling the flip faster side. than TypeScript at that point. You're, 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 producing, you're producing a <laughs> compiled language faster than an interpreted language is being reinterpreted. Yeah, and, and everyone knows that Rust compile time are always great. Right? Always so great. That's, it's well yeah. known. Everybody knows that. It's safe. It's safe. It's safe, and it's always fast for everything. Always and it's fast. always the right answer. Always the right answer. Definitely never yeah. been any problems with it. All right, so yeah, no, so you've no. been doing that. One of the hard parts I find being on these types of teams is that you make a decision early on that feels like the right decision to make at the time, but then it ends up being like a force negative multiplier. Have you ran into any of these things where you've made decisions that you wish you would have just like, oh my goodness, if I could just go back? <laughs> well, so I'm actually in a slightly different position in that when I came in, there was already a build system that was developed by a sort of community of excited Rust people internally. Like okay. there wasn't an official build tool, but there was like one made by the Rust community internally. And, you know, it it was really good compared to many of the other build tools, but it committed me to every decision that that build tool yep. had made. And so it's not so much that I wish I could take back my own decisions as yeah. I wish I could take back some of theirs. Yeah, no, I get um, that. Um, but but what what has been exciting though is uh, I, the Rust community internally are just really passionate about using Rust, mm -hmm. and so really, they're they very are? engaged as a community. I actually have met yeah. very very few people that are passionate about using Rust. That's a good point. Yeah, uh, I think uh, the AWS people are probably outliers okay. uh, and probably just weird because no one in the real world cares. Yeah, no, no one does. And I, yeah. you know, it's not like I mean, I'm sure the Stack Overflow survey that says it's the most loved language was just the AWSers. Filling oh, yeah. it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With of distributed course. power of AWS. <laughs> That's exactly right. Utilize the Rust evangelism strike force is really just all of the AWS Rust users. Yeah, that makes sense. That yep. makes perfect sense. All right. So, uh, so you know, there's things in this tool that are difficult, all that. And, you know, I've heard a lot about uh, Amazon. If you, if, if it's a fine, uh, we can keep on going down this route. But I've heard a lot about Amazon. How was, how was the effort you had to put in? Did you find that it was easy to kind of balance your life with what uh, Amazon expects? Yeah, you know, I one thing that's weird about Amazon internally is that it's a lot of fairly disjoint teams. Like it almost yeah. feels like there's a bunch of startups that are like loosely connected. Like if I want something from another team, it's really more like a sort of customer relationship, right? Mm -hmm. Where I ask them for something and they might just say, no, fuck off, <laughs> right? Like it's just not... Yeah. It's not the sort of the the normal like tightly coupled architecture, and this also means that teams vary a lot between one another. And I think I was very lucky with the team I ended up on, um, because I've been given a lot of sort of flexibility and leeway to sort of do things my own way. Like I don't feel much pressure in terms of um, like having to work more or anything like that. Quite to the contrary, I feel like there's a lot of trust in. I know what needs to be done. Like I have the expertise in the area I'm working in and I know how to best use my time. And so what matters is do I deliver like, you know, in, in corporate speak value to my customers yeah. as in the internal Rust users, that's all that really matters. If I started to like lag on that metric, then of course there'd be consequences. But in general, there's like not a lot of, you know, handholding or, or micromanagement at all. Follow-up question: Since uh, your customers are a highly motivated, highly uh, loving, opinionated. Uh, highly opinionated, oh, very opinionated, yeah. but also oh, yeah. like, you know, they're, they're using Rust. They're very, very pleased. Do you find that it makes your job easier that you have people that are so invested in, or does it make your job harder that every single decision receives its own pre-built bike shed with all the colors of the rainbow to paint on it? 
<laughs> it's a little bit of both. Um, okay. Although I would say on the whole, um, that there's been a lot of, I think, confidence and excitement about me sort of taking on the the effort because previously what they had was it was just community supported so everything was a long running discussion mm -hmm. where nothing got decided and yeah. ultimately no change was made because no one had the time and now you know i can actually contribute like full-time resources to build this thing and making it better so so far there's been a lot of like just go just do make everything better just do it nice. um every now and again we sort of bog get bogged down in discussions but on the whole it's it's been pretty pleasant okay um what about uh, uh how does that do you have like more people working with you do is it just you doing this kind of monumentous effort or have you been able to get a team or create a team or create a vision around it so um it used to just be me so for the first year year and a half it was just me um and then now very recently we've hired into my team so we recently hired two people um and one of them is uh tim mcnamara who wrote rust in action which has been really cool yep. that's the first um, book i read on rust was that one yep. um so the three of us are now like the ones doing that work uh and you know it it does make a huge difference whether you are one person or more than one person. Yeah. Like currently, I've sort of been in this mode, right, where for the past year and a half, any time there's a fire, which, you know, is a lot of the time, yeah. um, I have to be the one working on it, which means I can't do other things. And now finally, there are multiple people. And so we can like spread the fires out. Nice, nice. Okay. So it's making things easier. You're making th you're you're moving faster. So you've done a lot of rust. Obviously, you're even doing it professionally, helping people do that. What are some of the biggest pitfalls you're seeing with rust, kind of in the more production setting? Because there's obviously a lot of jokes that go around, and one of the most popular phrases are, "There's languages that everyone complains about and languages that aren't used." Right? I think it goes something like that. That that was the creator right. of um uh, plus um I believe said that. <laughs> I didn't want to you know I didn't want to say such derogatory terms I, it on does the it does make me uh, triggered yeah, yeah. thank I, you thank you're you. welcome thank you. I, i'm I'm, yeah. I'm sensitive too i understand yeah so yeah. what are some uh, of the big pitfalls what are the things you're seeing that rust is going to have to address or is it community culture that has to address some of these things you know in some sense my answer is there are a lot um and the, I think the question is, you know, to what extent are they surmountable obstacles? Because for, you know, the, the language you mentioned previously, um, we have this problem where many of the problems are at this point not reasonable to fix. Like they're so baked into everything yeah. that fixing them isn't really feasible. For Rust, I think there are some things that are problematic, but I think for most of them, we can sort of see some light in the distance for how we might get through them. Mm -hmm. um, I think the top contenders are um, asynchronous Rust, like the story there. And this is, you know, this is arguably obvious. Um, like ev this is what everyone complains about. Yeah. But, but there are challenges there around a sort of fundamental disconnect between what Rust sort of promises and what we deliver because Rust sort of is supposed to promise that if it compiles, it runs yeah. or some variant of that. And that is true for a lot of Rust code, but for async Rust, there are a bunch of cases where that just isn't true. Um, and I think that rubs a lot of people the wrong way, rightfully so. Um, okay. Can you give us an example? What do you mean by that? Uh, I'm, I'm kind of curious about that. Are you just sure. talking about just mutex deadlock or what are, what are we talking? Um, so... There was a pretty good blog post on this by Nico Matsakis a while back, but but basically, what one of the things that comes up a lot is uh, this problem called async cancellation. Um, and the basic idea is, imagine that you have a future that is, say, reading from a network socket, um, and you have a different future, and it's like trying to parse a JSON object from it or whatever, yeah. um, and you have another future that's like uh, waiting for a timeout or waiting for yeah. whatever, let's say timeout is fine. So you do like a select between the two and whichever happens first, you're gonna work on that. And then you mm -hmm. do some stuff and then you loop and you do it again. Yeah. So the problem is that imagine you have the select and you end up going into the timer timeout branch. Then the other future might have read some bytes but not enough bytes to parse the JSON object. Mm -hmm. But that means they've been taken out of the TCP stream. So when that future gets dropped and you do the work related to the timeout and you loop around again and you try to reparse from the TCP stream, you've now lost some of the bytes. Yeah. Right? Because they were in the future that were dropped. 
Uh, and so now that is just broken forever. It's never going to get the initial part of that JSON object again or whatever it read out. Wouldn't that be the same problem, though, in all languages? You could imagine the same thing with uh, even, you know, JavaScript, right? You could, if you had some sort of stream of input that has some sort of async, you know, nature to it, you're just reading from a raw TCP socket, you have no guarantee on when it's happening. And if you only read the, the first 10,000 bytes, you have a timeout. The, the big difference is that in Rust, uh, futures are they only do work when you pull them, like when you await them. Yeah. And so, whereas in, in JavaScript, like with promises, the, the future is always running in the background. It never actually gets canceled. So when you go around again, you're basically going to be awaiting the same promise and it has been allowed to continue running. It never dropped its data. Okay. Um, and so, so, so this is like a very subtle problem case for, for async Rust code. And it's not one that you run into a lot, but when it happens, it's extremely counterintuitive and hard to debug. Okay. And this is something the language should be guarding you against. And we just don't quite know how yet. Yeah, because it's, it's very hard to understand the intent because there could be the intent that you don't want to read anything because it didn't complete. Give it again, right? right? Yeah, or it could be that you intend for that future to actually like only consume things from the TCP stream in like amounts that you know will constitute a full object, yeah. right? Like who knows what the intention was, but the reality is that when you try to write code like this, your code is just going to panic. Like it's not going to work. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, it's not, it's definitely not a trivial problem. I, I, I'm very no. curious if you can even solve it. What, what are some other ones? Because that's a fairly you know, subtle one that I think the 99% aren't going to run into, uh, at least as far as I can tell, right? Well, it's tricky, right? Because the the challenge arises whenever you do something like a select. And so where this really bites you is, you know, in, in your application code, you have a select between two things that seem entirely unrelated. And then somewhere deep down the hood, one of them reads from a TCP stream. Then this might actually affect your application much farther up the stack. Okay. Right? So it's one of those things where it might just bite you out of nowhere. And that's disturbing. Okay. Okay. Um, what's, what's but the to, to take another example, okay, so something else that, that is annoying about async in Rust yeah. um, that, that is much more user visible is the lack of uh, async functions and traits, right? So if you have a trait, you can't write an async function in there. It just mm. doesn't work. Isn't um, there some sort of macro right now that allows for async traits? Yeah, so there's a there's a crate called async trait um, mm -hmm. that's written by David Tolney, who, who makes a lot of the cool stuff in the in the Rust ecosystem. And what it does is basically turn asyncfn into just a regular function that returns a boxed future. And that generally works. Um, the big downside with it is that it has to do a heap allocation for every future. Mm -hmm. um, and that's usually fine for like high-level applications, but imagine you're writing something like, at one point I wrote a um, an implementation of the MySQL binary protocol in Rust. Uh, and so I had an, a trait that represented reading a byte from the connection, like reading a U32 from the connection. Yeah. And if every single read of a U32 goes through a heap allocation and deallocation, that's not okay anymore. Yeah, that quick, quickly gets out of control. And then this gets back to, again, like Rust's promise is this like zero cost, you know, high performance business. And when when we have this primitive that just doesn't support that very low in the stack, it, it propagates all the way up and you see all these high costs that shouldn't need to be there. Is there, a, is there an actual path forward on these async traits or is it kind of just like a baked into the baked into the cake? No, there is. Um, so this is, let me see if I can dig up this uh, uh, baby steps. So Nico Matakis has a blog called uh, Baby Steps. Uh, and it's on smallcultfollowing.com, which I think is a fantastic That's a great domain. Um, and in particular, he has a, um, a sort of blog post series on basically how do we solve this problem? Uh, how do we get async FN in traits? How do we get um, async drop? All of that stuff. Let me see if I can dig that up and yeah, if you if you dig it up, please it throw it in the chat. People will see it on the the YouTube video right here. And so, yeah, yeah. This is just paste in. Ooh, it looks like a rocker got it. Is it? Uh, yeah, and then the other one here is a, a study specifically of async cancellation. Okay, cool. These are two good ones that you should probably go and check out, huh? Yeah, they're they're great, especially if you're like curious about these problems and and the ways in which Rust itself, like Rust as a language, might change in order to support them. These are really good write-ups. Uh, is Rust uh, so? C++, obviously, one of its big problems. Hey, 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 hey. Oh, hey. Oh, my goodness. I, I mean, next thing you know, I'm going to be saying V.
code and all that kind of stuff like right oh, here on stream i know just, i can't even i can't even i'm sorry do we need to just cancel this right now uh yeah can you just like wipe the last and then we'll just go back and okay so with c plus obviously it you know it's uh, it's waited under all the decisions it's been making for a long, long time. Is Rust, because I know I've, I've read that they're, you know, they're keeping a lot of compatibility and all that. Is there any, will they break compatibility to make things better in the future? Or is that just a simple no? You know, it's, it's a little bit of a complicated question because the, on the can, it says no, right? Yeah. So the, the, the stated stance of Rust is we will not make breaking changes. Um, and I think that will remain true for the foreseeable future and pro possibly forever. But there's this like sneaky loophole around this this bit with additions, right? So with Rust additions, they have a way of saying you can opt into breaking changes. Um, and that allows them to do some things that are, you know, kind of not backwards compatible, but it required an explicit opt-in, so it's fine. Um, Does there come a point where everyone opts in and you just have to break it, or are they going to forever have this? Because that seems like well, so, it seems well, nice so that's, now. That's one of the things that's neat is that this opt-in mechanism is per crate. So okay. if you opt in, I can still use you even if I didn't opt in. Okay. Okay. Uh, which which means that it's actually it's actually okay. Um, but for like the mm. the best example I can think of here is. Um, uh, there's a discussion about whether we should have uh, lacy cell or once cell in the standard library. Um, I don't know if you've you know I, what these I, I are. I don't know quite what they are. I've used one cell once, but I don't. I, I think I just was copying and pasting code, and I'm not super into the cell area as it is. But uh, I, I, you know, I, I haven't got to that yeah, level fine. of frustationing. But. Yeah, that's fine. There's basically a, a discussion of there are these two crates in the ecosystem that provide this, a similar kind of functionality, but in slightly different ways. And one of them has sort of landed in the standard library, and they're trying to figure out that they should replace it with the other approach. And there's a lot of discussion of should we remove the old one because we know it's bad? Mm. Or should we just mark it as deprecated and keep it forever? Um, and you know, there's there's a lot of discussion about is this is this right or is it not? Um, and and I don't think we have a good answer to it. The the thread is over here. Let me put it in chat. So like, I do think the Rust language has some of these where you know things are considered mistakes and they can't really be, they can only be fixed at additions or some things just cannot be fixed. Um, there is in fact on the Rust issue tracker there is a tag specifically for issues that. We wish we could fix, but we can't. Mm -hmm. uh, let me see if I can. There's like a wish list for Rust 2.0, which is basically issues that will never, never happen. Uh, yeah, Rust 2 breakage wish list. Do you, if you were, you know, quote unquote, more in charge, would you make these breaking changes? Do you do you oh. see that there's a problem to that? No, and the, the answer is because I I think backwards compatibility is very important to sustain the language. I think maybe one day we could get away with it, but that day is not now. Mm -hmm. right? Look at something like Python 2 to 3. Yeah. Right? I, that that Python hurt Python's credibility there. a lot, but yeah. Python was super popular at the time, mu much more so than Rust is now. And so it sort of survived that change, even though you know there's still a big split in that ecosystem. I don't think Rust can afford to do that right now. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Because uh, uh, just a language frustrating curve as it is to get into a point of proficiency, which, I mean, even I still don't consider myself like greatly proficient with it. Uh, but even with that, if you were to break things and then I'd have to relearn, it would just feel even more frustrating on top of it that I could see myself yeah. being like, you know, just go with go. It's just easier. You're going to always, yep. you're going to win. And you know, I think the even bigger issue is actually around teaching where you know, what the way most people program is they look, they run into a problem, they look it up, they go to Stack Overflow, and they copy paste the code. And that is a workflow that we want to support as a language, right? Mm -hmm. Because if if we did a breaking change to the language, you might do that, copy paste the code, and then it doesn't work, even though it used to work. And it doesn't work because, you know, something in the syntax has changed. 
And that is a major barrier to people just being able to cobble together a working program. And it, it hinders a lot of experimentation, right? Mm -hmm. So so I guess, uh, you know, I, I see this all the time, which is that there's a lot of very popular libraries that you could argue are more used by more people uh, that do make breaking changes all the time that people have to either stick with the old version or burn down and rebuild. And so, like, is this notion within a language... Do you think it's going to keep on going or do you think that the younger crowd, say all the people in the TypeScript world who are like, well, I was on React 16, now I'm on 18 and I have to break all these things and it's completely different. And oh, this was bad at once, you know, was use effect was the greatest thing ever. Use effect is now completely out of fashion, should never use it, right? Like, you know, is there a group of people coming up that this argument doesn't make much sense for them? Um, so I think there's a difference between the argument not making sense and people being used to it, mm -hmm. right? I, I do think this is something people are getting used to is like, you have to deal with breaking changes or if you're a vendor, you know that you're gonna have to do breaking changes. Um, and so they might be used to that coming into Rust, but I think breaking the language is fairly different from breaking a library, right? Because the language affects everyone, whereas the library only affects a very small number of people or yeah. compared to the total set, right? Like if there's a breaking change to Tokyo, right? The asynchronous runtime, that affects a large proportion of Rust users, but not all of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, the, whenever as, as a library vendor, what you want to think about when deciding whether to do a breaking change is, you know, how many users do I have? And that sort of dictates how often you can get away with making them. If half of Rust users use your thing, you should probably not do breaking changes more often than every like four or five years. But if there are two people using your thing, you can breaking changes all the time and it's fine. Yeah, yeah, uh, okay. All right, I, I get that. So you've, you've been at, you've been at uh, Amazon now for almost two years, right? Am I correct on that? Yep. Yeah. And uh, how long do you see yourself working there? Do you feel like you have too much, you know, too much skin in the game to ever leave? Like, well, what is it like? What, what is your future no, plans here? No, no, not at all. I, in fact, you know, the, the reason I joined AWS in the first place was because it was a fairly unique opportunity. Like, mm -hmm. there are not a lot of companies that have a position where you can work full-time on the Rust experience, right? Because for yep. most companies, it doesn't make sense to have employees that just work on the language experience. Yeah. Right? You need them to work on product. If you have a smaller company, that's what you need. If you're a sort of mid-sized company, you might have one person, but you're not going to have a team or an organization. Yeah. Um, and most of the bigger companies don't really have, you know, as much of an interest in Rust. Like Google doesn't have a Rust team in a meaningful sense. Yeah. Um, They're pretty committed to Go, I hear. Right, right. Which, you know, good for them. The, yeah. They can they can have it. It's fine. Um, they can go but, get it. They can go get it. Yeah, exactly. Or go go get fucked. Yeah, uh, whichever one. <laughs> whichever one. But AWS and Meta, I think, are the only two companies yep. that, that really have like Rust teams. Um, and at the time when I was looking for work, Meta was not really hiring remotely, which was a, a non-starter for me. Um, and AWS was the other one. Uh, and so for me, that was an... A, an opportunity to like really make a difference on the Rust ecosystem, both you know by by enabling Amazon to adopt it more broadly, which I think is good for Rust, you know, just by getting yeah. more money, more adoption into the language, um, but also because it's a role where I could continue contributing to Rust. Like I can do Rust streams or Rust education and work on Cargo, work on Rust C as part of my job, and that makes me excited. I don't know that this will remain true forever, right? Like I think down the line, both there are going to be other companies where this is going to be possible, mm -hmm. but also the, the language might get to a point where I'm like, okay, I feel like I've done like my part. Now I want to work on like a product or I want to work on a tool uh, that that is public. Or for that matter, you know, it might get to the point where I want to just do full-time you know, teaching and working on the open source bits that that I maintain out there. That's not feasible right now, um, but you know, however many years down the line, I think that is something that I, I would enjoy a lot. You know, as my experience has been too, I don't like to stick with the same thing for too long because I think you you get sort of ground into this track yeah. where you stop being productive, but also you stop being um, what's the word? Curious, uh, creative, or curious? Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, and so like, I worry about working on this internal Rust build system for so long that I, I get sort of single-minded in what it should be doing. Yeah. Uh, and I want to give it over to other people. Yeah, it's very, it, it becomes very easy to get abstracted from what it's actually like doing something. And then you yep. start coming up with these ideas that feel really good and they appear very good on paper, but then, you know, the people using it are like, dude, it's just, yep. just missing lately. It's just not good. And, yeah. And I, I think build tools in particular has this problem because you, you think you know what's best for the build tool, but if you're not building anything with it, yeah. how do you know what the important things are? Right, you need to have conversations with the people using your thing, or ideally be one of them. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm in full agreement. I've I've just recently ranted about my feelings of non-coding architects. That it's it's all in the same kind of vein or nature. Oh yeah, where it's just the abstraction from reality can cause really like long-term hard and difficult, you know, consequences yep. for it. Yeah, and I do I do certainly also worry that the longer you're at, especially one of the big companies, the more you become the person who knows how stuff works. And so you end up getting looped in more in terms of like writing docs or reviewing docs or reviewing code because you know how the pieces yeah. fit together. And so you shouldn't waste your time on that coding stuff, right? That's not a feeling I have right now at all, but, but it is something where I could totally see that becoming true at some yeah. point. And I would want to avoid that at all costs. I I love coding too much. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think I think that I think that's a good mentality. I mean, because some people do like those kind of things, uh, but I I don't feel, especially in our uh, maybe this moment in time in tech, a lot of it is you know at least in the valley, uh, at least you know in the fang companies a lot. You'll hear a lot about like up leveling. Mentoring always means going into management. Ment you know everyone's looking how to increase their impact, if you will which often that is never emphasized or pointed to as one thing being great at coding, right? It's always yeah. communication, communication, communication. And I feel like you lose a lot of this momentum because you just have a whole group of people who could make awesome change. It's just, there's no encouragement to be in that position. Is that true? I, at, I think at one Amazon? of the reasons, yeah. One, one of the reasons why it's hard and, and I've, I've found this myself too, both in academia and, and in my current position is it's really hard to articulate for the size of your impact when that impact is, in, is indirect. Right? Yeah. If you work on you know, S3, you can say, I made this change and it saved the company a billion dollars. Right? Like you, can, you have like direct measurements. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas for me, if I say I saved half a second on every invocation of cargo at the company. Yeah. That matters a lot for things like IDE experience for builders, but I can't really say how much it matters in dollars or engineering hours mm -hmm. or happiness of people using Rust. So it's very hard for me to demonstrate the impact, even though I know the impact is big. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, because even if, even if people are using it, they may not even realize, they may not even actually perceive the benefits of said change. Yep. It may be a slight incremental kind of perception type issue. Which ultimately they're Teaching just having the a better, you know, they're having a better experience overall, but they have no one way to contribute it to, you know, any yep. one thing. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a difficult thing. Teaching, teaching at least you have the benefit of putting things out there in which people either repeat or expand upon. So I always feel like teaching you have a leg up sort of because you know you can have catchphrases like blazingly fast, and then blazingly fast every library has the term like you know like there is kind of a teaching emulation moment in that which is, you know, people follow and you can at least measure something with that. That's true. Although, you know, again, let's say I wanted to articulate or try to argue for, I should spend half my time on just doing teaching stream at AWS. Mm -hmm. I think it might be a good use of my time because, yeah. you know, as you say, one of the things that's challenging about picking up Rust is there, like, there's so much to learn. It's hard to really grok the details. You need, like... There's just a lot of stuff that someone needs to yeah. teach you. And I think I could do that. The question is, how do I argue that this is worth it? How yeah. can I sh demonstrate that this shortens the time to learn Rust for the majority of teams looking to adopt Rust at AWS if I do public streams on Rust? Like the, the connection is so weird and convoluted and indirect. Yeah, it's also it, a five-year connection, right? It, as you yep. start teaching, as you start doing these things, people are going to go off and there's going to be this long tail of learning. And eventually, Rust or uh, Amazon's going to receive maybe a 5% lift in applications to say Rust is one of their primary languages, right? But yep. that's such a long play and someone has to be committed to being like, hey, engineer, I'm going to pay you 
a very handsome salary to go do something in which we'll have zero benefit for years on end, and we don't even know if it's going yep. to benefit us. We're just assuming it could. Yep. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I said earlier that I feel lucky about the team that I on, I'm on because I do feel like my sort of leadership chain buys into this long-term vision, right? Like I'm in yeah. the the builder tools organization at AWS, which is an organization that's made to support the builders with the understanding that that, that is an important thing to do, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, so I do feel like I, I, I'm able to make some of those arguments without having, you know, the direct evidence, but it is very hard of an argument to make. And I think that's why this position doesn't exist at most companies. I think this is why, you know, there are not a lot of people doing this full time. Um, I, yeah. I wish it was easier, but I don't have a good way to do it. Yeah. You're only one, you're one of two people that I personally know that have been able to work themselves into a position more like this, where you get to spend at least some percentage of your time. Uh, doing something that's not just directly impacting a product, which is very, yeah. very interesting. Uh, so uh, your team, it's expanding. Uh, do you have open positions now? Can you get any of chat excited about potentials for applying? Being we on? actually just we just did a big like hiring wave. Mm -hmm. uh, so we we have the people filled that we, we could fill. Um, Sag. So for the time Sorry. being, I don't have any. I know there's a bunch of like Rust positions at AWS more broadly, but but not sadly specifically on the stuff that I'm doing. But that said, I think we're in a position where my team is going to continue to expand because I think we're like as Rust grows, right? You need more people to support the the growing funnel of developers above us. So the the moment I know of more, I will let everyone know. Okay. Okay. Fantastic. And uh, I guess the last question is that you have been leaning obviously into a lot of teaching and you've even written a book. How has that been? Because that's obviously been a much different book. I've read a few of the Rust books at this point and all of them are very uh, pedantic would be a good term for them. Yours is very- Handholdy? Uh, I wouldn't even, I'm not sure if handholdy is the right term. Uh, I always give this as an example, the Rust in Action book, right? Uh, to show you like just the intro, like how easy multi-threading is in Rust, right? This pro this this fearless concurrency, right? Is I think the term he uses throughout it. But in the beginning, to show you that, there's three pages on Mandelbrot sets and a small section of code going into uh, concurrency. There's effectively zero explanation of what's actually happening, but you get mathed for pages. And it feels really, pedantic's not quite the right term. Uh, potentially, if there was a version of religious piety, but in the math world, right? It feels yeah, like that you where you're getting looked down on because you're like, oh gosh, yeah, I guess we're going to explain complex numbers now. Here we go. We're multiplying. You know, like it's not, it doesn't feel like I'm learning anything useful. I'm just simply seeing how smart someone is who wrote a book and eventually mm. I might get something out of it. Whereas I found your book, every page was consumable, right? Each page mm. had something on it that I was like, oh, I'm taking something out of it, right? Not just getting, you know, math-splained. Yeah, I... This was a this was a long discussion I had with my editor and, and publisher for the book too of like, should you use more words here? Mm -hmm. uh, and you know it came up in various different guises, but in general the the sense was you know not to pad out the book to just make it arbitrarily more pages, but more this is very like harsh. This is very stark. There's not a lot of transitions. There's not a lot of, you know, bringing people up to speed slowly. And I understand why many books do it because it makes it much more, much easier or more comfortable to read the book. But for me, that's not what this was. This was intended to be, you know, I already know what I'm doing. Like yeah. I know the language, I know other stuff, and I just want to figure out how this thing in Rust works because it's weird or it's complicated. Exactly. Um, and so I wanted to try to capture that th that mindset of I'm reading this not because I want to read a book. I'm reading this because I need an answer to why the fuck this is doing what it does. Um, and so I wrote it that way. And, and it does mean that, you know, it, it ends up very punchy, like it goes from one point to another and yep. it makes it very dense. And, and I see that in some of the reviews too, right? Of people being like, this is a very dense book. And it really is because that's sort of the intention. Um, yeah. but, but I do think that means that it is more useful for those who are looking for, you know, the, the deep technical dives as opposed to a, a walkthrough. Yeah. Uh, one big thing that I really liked about it is like, you know, even uh, what's called like uh, too many damn lists. That's another, I actually found that to be a very excellent article 
but it's like it's uh, inundated with a bunch of very beginner friendly sections. And so like I'm trying to zoom through these beginner friendly items, but then in the middle of one of those beginner friendly items is like that little piece of information. You're just like, oh my goodness, right? Like I just didn't know that the order of enums can cause some sort of null, uh, you know, optimization for this, right? Like, but I would have missed that because it's explaining enums which are very trivial and then explains some types and you're like, yeah, I, you know, keep going. Where's the actual thing. And you miss that one little bit. That's like super informative. That's why I love this. Why I love the book is because it was just bits that were informative, right? I didn't have to battle through. Okay. Explain what a trade is for a long time. Ex show me examples of how to use an if statement, right? I get all that away. I just want the, I want the meat. You know, I think what happened there was actually the sort of, I forget what it's called, like the curse of success or something, right? Where, too many linked lists started out being very light on that kind of a side. Like there was very light on explanation. It was more like, here are the codes. Uh, and and what happened was people were really excited about it. it. They felt as though it conveyed a lot of information. And so more and more people started linking to it in more and more contexts, including, mm. hey, I'm interested in Rust. Where do I start? Or I'm just trying to do a linked list in Rust to get started. And everyone linked to this article. And then you end up with more and more people looking at it that don't have the same technical yep. background. And so you end up having to fill in more of the gaps so that it becomes an intro article as well. Um, interesting, interesting. Yeah, I, I guess I, I never thought about I think that's what happened. That yeah, because yeah, that's almost tragic in some sense that it, it yeah. became, it, it, it addressed two audiences, right? And that's always the hardest thing possible. I'm happy you didn't take that approach. I mean, though I can understand why someone in a more beginner kind of position would find that to be very useful, but it just seems... Uh, it seems like it's really hard to do well to have something geared towards beginners and intermediates, right? Oh or yeah, it's it's you you can't do it. Uh, I mean, I think in general you just need to know your audience when developing any teaching resource, but especially a book because y y the attention is like so tenuous at best, right? Mm -hmm. You need to make sure that people actually stay engaged, and you lose the beginners if you go into too much detail without you know, the, the, the guiding in between and you lose the intermediate people. If you have lots of the guiding in between there, there's no, there's nothing in between those two. Yeah. But, but for me, like this tied back to the, the title of the book actually, where I had a long discussion with the publisher about what should the title of the book be? And it started up being like idiomatic rust or, uh, you know, classic uh, next phrase. steps for rust, like that kind of stuff, <laughs> yeah. which doesn't really mean anything. Like yeah. what does idiomatic mean? Yeah. It um, means the beholder feels like right. this is the best way to do it. That's what it feels right, like. Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and so when I proposed Rust for Restations, they were like, oh, but this is going to limit the audience of the book because people need to know what Restation is to even know whether the book is for them. And I'm like, that's kind of the point. Yeah. That is intentional. That's uh, awesome. Like there are, there's a group of people that I don't want to buy this book because it's not for them. They would just be confused. Interesting. Have, uh, since, since writing this book, have you received any hate for it? Have you had any like hard moments because of it because obviously there's a lot of people like me to say hey this was a great experience you did awesome on it but have you had kind of the opposite where you've received more harsher words um not too bad i i have certainly had some that i think the 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 harshest i've had and this is arguably not very harsh is that the book is just text like mm -hmm. it is a giant, you know, block of text and there's a little bit of code in there, but ultimately it's a lot of text. And, you know, this book would have been good if it had more code examples, more diagrams, more illustrations. Yeah. And I understand that criticism. I don't disagree with it. I think, you know, if I had more time that I was, that I put into writing it or um, even maybe for a second edition or a third edition or whatnot, maybe I'll be able to put that in. But I think those things are less important. Yeah. Right. I think what the book wants to do is give you the hook, right? You can do all the following research yourself, but you yeah. can't discover things on your own quite as easily. I want to tell you that there is a thing called trait coherence. And this is roughly what it is. And then if you want more detail, go read about it in the other resources that exist. Yeah. Um, that makes sense. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, if you if you have an affiliate link for your own Rust book, throw it in the chat now. That way you can double dip into that sweet Amazon right now. That'd be sweet. Uh, yeah, that, that'd be great. And John, John, who, where can we find you? Where do you normally kind of have an outlet for all the things you're working on, for updates? What's your favorite places? 
Um, so I generally hang out on Twitter. Uh, okay. That's the place you'll find me. Um, and that's so just John Who, right? John Who. Yep. yep. I have you right um, here. There you go. You have I have your Twitch and your Twitter, which are named the same. John Who. Amazing. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Um, Is it and... Who because no one can pronounce your last name? Um, it, it didn't start that way, but it has become that way. John who? Uh, which like, I think you, is great. Don't worry. You yeah, John you who? Who's this John it. guy? Yeah. Um, and a lot of people assume that I'm Korean because of my username, which is funny because I'm very not Korean. You don't strike me as Korean at least. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I hang out a lot on Twitter and I, I try to be fairly like high signal, low noise, uh, as an account. Okay. Uh, so, so like I do, you know, random Twitter threads about rust or rants about rust. Um, and I don't do a lot of like weird other stuff. Uh, so that, that might be interesting. Um, I also, so I do streams on Twitch and YouTube simultaneously. So you can catch me on either of those. Okay. And then all the uploads I do go to YouTube afterwards. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you for being a part of this. I had a lot of fun. I hope, hopefully you had a lot of fun on this. Yeah, it was great. Time. Thanks awesome. for having me. Yeah. I feel like I've learned more. I do need the guy. I still need to read over the, the async section in that book. It is my yeah. I mean, if you if you read it and then go, uh, this is all shit. Just just let me know, and we can, we can have another chat about that. Ooh, I know. Can you believe that it just appeared in front of me? That's amazing. Yep. It's 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 lunchtime, is what it is. So, I, I believe that. Right. Yeah, I gotta go eat too. All right. Well, thank you very much. I had a great time. Um, Likewise. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So everyone in the audience, please go to his uh, Twitch, go to his Twitter, give him a follow, and then make sure you say a lot of stupid things on the internet to him. That'd be great, right? Yes, please do. Yeah, I love please do.